Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, humorist Samantha Irby is known for her all-too-relatable essay collections, including 2020's bestseller, Wow, No Thank You. Her latest, titled Quietly Hostile, begins with the sentence, This is not an advice book. But it does give some advice about what to say when someone yucks your yum and her suggested rules for using a public bathroom. Irby joins us to talk about the sometimes gross, sometimes funny, but always fascinating realities of her and our human behavior. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. You might know Samantha Irby for her best-selling essay collection, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, or laughed at her punchlines. She's written for TV shows like Shrill and the Sex and the City reboot and Just Like That. Well, Irby has a new essay collection, her fourth, titled Quietly Hostile. And in it, she covers everything from her thoughts on writing in Hollywood, being a proud Dave Matthews fan, bladder control or lack thereof, and the power of saying, I like it. And she joins us now. Welcome to Forum, Sam Irby. Thank you for having me. Yes, so glad to have you. I really enjoyed reading the book. And I have to say my first laugh was actually at the dedication page. I <laughs> I initially thumb passed thumb past it quickly. You know, I saw a Z and thought, oh, you know, you're dedicating it to someone named Zora or another Z name. And I go back to properly read it and it's dedicated to Zoloft. <laughs> Yes, I am a proud, uh, well, proud may not be the right word, but uh, a vocal (laughs) (laughs) proponent of uh, mental health medications for myself. And I take 300 milligrams of Zoloft a day, without which I couldn't have written this book. So I always try to... uh, to dedicate my books to whatever medication I'm taking in the hopes that like a pharmaceutical rep will <laughs> see that and just drive up a Brinks truck full of antidepressants to my house. Well, yeah, there's just there's really no slow burn with you, which is what I also got with that. It's like you get right in there with the candor, which I know is what I you're try. you're known for and, and loved for um, with your books. And 
So this one's titled Quietly Hostile. Um, You write in one of your essays that that's how you describe your public personality. Tell us about Mm -hmm. that. Um, I think, I I mean, anyone who's read anything I've written knows that I am deeply Midwestern um, and I love the flat brown middle of America. <laughs> and one of one of our characteristics here is that we don't yell and we, we're passive aggressive. And maybe you'll know when we're mad, but maybe not. And I have perfected the art of looking calm or unfazed while inside my blood is like lava. Yeah. <laughs> well... To that point, to maybe illustrate a little bit of that, I'd actually love for you to read a bit um, from the first chapter of the book, and I'll set it up. So you um, you confess that you get embarrassed sometimes for having, quote-unquote, basic tastes. Yes. And then you recount a time when a friend of your wife, who you gave a dry cleaning recommendation to when she requested one, brings back her opinions about your recommendation and the strip mall that it's located in. And she calls it depressing and says, <laughs> I can't believe you go there. So I'll let you take it away from there. Okay. I can't believe you go there, she repeated. And it became clear to me that she wanted an explanation, an apology. Unfortunately, I was in no mood to be forced to atone for a place that I did not conceptualize, did not build, do not own, do not live in, do not profit from, frequently use with satisfaction, told her about as a courtesy because she asked me. Wanting to keep this early morning interaction as brief as possible, my brain cycled through the possibilities of how to respond. I could apologize for uh, helping her and solving her problem, apologize for having poor taste in local shopping plazas, apologize for being alive, apologize, then snarkily ask how her dry cleaning turned out, and then immediately and reflexively apologize again for being snarky. Imagine me saying, I'm sorry that the home of Bill's greeting card hut and Lucy's luxury lashes wasn't up to your exacting standards, and I apologize for making you look at dull brown bricks. I would rather live inside the value city that's next door to Glamour Nails. But I didn't say anything, and she chuckled again, saying, It's so ugly, followed by an anticipative pause. And I don't know, man, the smoothie spot is pretty good, and the out-of-business DVD store is oddly comforting to me. So I arranged my face into something resembling cheerfulness and said, in my highest octave, I like it. Gotcha. I watched as she searched for something to say next since I dodged the trap she'd set and whatever further insult she had prepared to hit me with. I like it, I chirped again. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I've read... Um... You know, in an interview where you said you, the reason you write is because you're mystified by your own behavior. And like that excerpt you oh, just yeah. read, other humans' behavior, clearly. <laughs> yes. So does writing it down help you make sense or see it differently or also just, you know, have the satisfaction of a gotcha <laughs> moment, you know, for, for the world to read? Tell me more about that. 
I think in the writing of it, I feel, you know, righteous anger that I would never say to the person who's made me mad. But, you know, I'm like my keyboard is smoking as I'm typing. But the real catharsis, I think, is when is the telling it to other people, the the saying, here's the thing I went through. This is insane. Right. And having other people be like, yes, yes, yes it is. Um Let's laugh at her. Yeah. <laughs> so, Have you heard from that friend of your wife? Uh, I, she doesn't. I don't think she knows that. Oh, it's, okay. Either she doesn't know it's her or she hasn't read the book. Okay. Which are both fine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Probably for the for the best. Yeah. Although, I mean, I'm quietly hostile. But if, if she were to bring it to me, then I know how to be loud. Yeah. And you'd be like, <laughs> I wrote the essay and you know what? I like it. I like yeah. it a lot. And so does America. Yes. It's America versus you. <laughs> so another aspect um, of, of your candor is, you're, you know, you're open equally about Zoloft as you are about um, some of your own anxiety. And mm-hmm. in, in one essay, you write that, quote, being perceived is excruciating. Um, but this is another thing similar to your you know, phrase, I like it, is that you've kind of found a personal hack that you recommend. And it's two words, wedding guest. <laughs> this is one of the greatest tricks in my arsenal. I, okay, so I used to do cognitive behavioral therapy and my therapist was a big mantra person you know write down a sentence and just say it to yourself that uh, is too much for me to do on an everyday basis but wedding guest is what I say to myself to remind myself that no one is paying attention to me I'm not the bride I'm not the one coming down the aisle. I am in the back sweating in an ill-fitting fancy outfit that I shouldn't have worn and no one cares. I think sometimes I get so stressed out about what if I run into someone? What if someone sees me? What if I say the wrong thing? And if I just remind myself that you know, during the reception, I'm in the back, like drinking directly out of the punch bowl. No one cares what I'm doing. And that helps me to feel less visible, right. which is a which is a good tool for me. I don't know if that would work for other people, but it is helpful to me. Yeah. And I'm sure you have people that have come up to you and and I know you said this is not an advice book, but a lot of the things that you offer are, you know, useful, useful hacks. I mean, it is advice. I just don't ever want to be held accountable for anything I say. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But yeah, I don't want anyone to expect that I know anything real. I just know little tricks to keep myself from melting down every day. Right. Well, we're going to be coming up on a break soon, but because we talked about standing by what you like a moment ago, I do want to mention that you devote a chapter to your personal list of Dave Matthews' greatest romantic hits, and you are an unabashed, self-proclaimed, you know, fan of Dave Matthews' band. So, I love him. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say explain and express my like ex- express <laughs> okay. my judgment through that, but I guess it's already come through. But yes, I would love to. I would love to know more. <laughs> 
he just seems like such a nice person, like a real sweetie, you know? That's how I know that I am middle-aged is because I start uh, caring about the sweetness of celebrities. But also his music, now I get it. If you don't like flute and fiddle music, I understand. But his songs are so beautiful and he's always singing about nice stuff. And I've just uh, reached a point where uh, I like my music to coddle me rather mm. than terrify me. And he fits he fits right into that like very safe groove of like something you could put on. It's going to sound good and you're not going to have any like jarring lyrics <laughs> to yeah. upset you during the middle of your commute. And you previewed in the book that you were potentially going to have a concert moment for the first time. Did that happen already or is that going to happen? Yes, I I saw him live for the first time. And I know it feels like a long time, but because I've been a fan since I was like 13. Mm. Um, But he mostly does outdoor shows. And so he did an indoor show near where I live. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going. The chance to see him while sitting in air conditioning. Yes. Um, And he was incredible. It was everything I could have hoped for. Well, I'm glad you got to have that moment. And we're actually going to go into the break to a bit of the Dave Matthews Band song, Say Goodbye, which is one of your one of your favorites listed. Again, this is a, this a playlist is that she offers of his greatest romantic hits. We'll have more with her talking about her new book of essays, Quietly Hostile, after the break. We're talking with Sam Irby. I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim, and you're listening to Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. We're talking about finding the funny in the grossness and anxieties of everyday life. One of the themes of the new essay collection, Quietly Hostile, by humorist, essayist, and TV writer Sam Irby, who's our guest this hour. And want to welcome you, our listeners, into the conversation. What do you want to ask or tell Sam Irby if you've read some of her books before? Um, what's maybe resonated for you? Is there an essay of hers that spoke to your soul? And, you know, we were talking about liking things that sometimes people might try to make you feel bad for liking. So we're curious, what's something you like that someone has perhaps made you feel bad about, you know, yucking your yum? And how did you respond? Let us know. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And, you know, perhaps you also identify with this uh, title, Quietly Hostile, um, and we'd love to hear how that might resonate for you as well. So, Sam Irby, um, I we touched on it a little bit, but, um, you know, imagining that your storytelling and your candor brings out a lot of stories from people who read your books. How is it for you, though, to to kind of be that person sometimes to connect with people just in random places in public about stories that you share? It's incredible. Um, One of the joys of my life is how often people talk to me about their bowel movements. Um, (laughs) I, I am the kind of person who, if we just meet and we hit it off, uh, you could tell me your deepest secret and we'll get into it. Right. I, I'm so curious about what other people do. I'm so curious to to learn the ways in which we are alike. I mean, so many things happen and it feels like you're in a vacuum. And then you talk to someone else who went through the same thing. And it's like, oh, my sister, my beloved, <laughs> please keep talking to me. I thought I was the only one. Um, so I love it. It doesn't bother me at all. Every time I do a book signing, someone in line or like 10 people in line will talk to me about going to the bathroom. And it's delightful every time. So that's that's a great segue. Thank you, because I was going to mention <laughs> that you talk openly um, about bowel movements, also about having mm-hmm. a bowel disease. And yeah. in general, you've kind of taken up a mission to normalize talking about them. So I'm curious, yeah, just a a little bit of your experience of navigating that as a person, um, you know, as someone who has has a bowel disease. And then how has that kind of helped uh, or maybe spurred some of your reason of wanting to talk about it because it's something that you've you've had to to deal with? Oh, sure. So in 2008, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, Mm. which you can Google or just like watch uh, daytime TV. You'll see many commercials for Crohn's medications. Um, And it was the same time I had started writing my blog. And it, it just felt freeing to write about it. And I think for me, uh, one of the benefits of having been so open is, again, finding community with people who also run screaming to the bathroom. Um, but also, it has just made life 
easier for me. I don't have to pretend, you know, you do the thing where you're like, let me go check my lipstick. And then you're in the bathroom for 20 minutes and you you want everyone to pretend that they don't know what you were doing. I don't have to do that because all I do is talk about. (laughs) I mean, it's not all I talk about, but I've been so open. I don't have I'm just trying to get rid of the shame of this absolutely normal thing that we all do and yet act horrified when we hear of someone else doing it. Um, And I think, you know, 10 plus years is a long time to be (laughs) talking about uh, your rectum. But if that frees someone else, it's worth it. Um, But also what little freedom it's created for me is worth it. Mm -hmm. I just don't have to pretend. I mean, life is so hard, right? And when you have to conceal things about yourself that make your life hard, it just gets harder. And I don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't. I don't want anybody to have to do that. Like, you don't have to be complaining all the time, every single ache and pain. But if you're like, hey, this thing is going on with me. It's an ongoing thing. Get used to it. Then it just makes your life so much easier. Hmm. So how do you decide what to share and what to, to keep for yourself? My rule of thumb is that I don't write about anything that I wouldn't want on the news. Because when you put something in a book, if you interact with literally anyone who's read your book, they talk to you about what you wrote. And I never want to be the kind of person who's like, okay, thanks for reading it, but that's not something I want to talk about with you. That feels so unfair to the audience. So I don't put anything in that I I wouldn't, that I'd be uncomfortable seeing on a billboard. <laughs> As for thumb. like <laughs> deciding what goes in, I don't, I try to keep it all about me because I don't want to upset anyone in my life that I'd like to continue having a relationship with um and anything that anything that sparks uh, a fire in me that can go on for 5000 words i'll just write it and turn it in and if it's usable great and if not uh they don't tell me and they put it in anyway <laughs> so it's a mix of like things i'm thinking about things that are happening to me um, and trying not to trying not to step on too many toes. Well, we have a fan of yours on the line. Linda in Oakland, you're on. Oh, my God. (laughs) Linda, Uh, are you there? Oh, there you are. Yeah, I I just I uh, no no question. Just thank you. Thank you for putting the work that you do out into the universe. I am. A mom, uh, we're, we're a two-mom family, multiracial kids. Life is so hard and so complicated sometimes. And I swear, I've listened to all your audiobooks, and I've had to pull over and both cry and laugh my ass off, sometimes at the same time. So thank you. Thank you so much. Linda, 
That is so nice. Thank you. Okay, I didn't know we were going to take calls. And so I immediately, you know, my stomach fell out of my butt when I heard that someone was going to be talking to me. But this is so nice. Linda, thank you. Um, if you are interested in a thruple, we could talk about that later. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I was just trying to make her laugh. <laughs> yes. No problem. No, it's all right. It's all right. We, we're welcoming the laughter own, on this, my on this own Friday wife morning. might have a problem with that. Right. <laughs> Well, she did. So she did mention, you know, sometimes laughing or crying or both. But, you know, you do, you know, sometimes, you know, mixed within a lot of, you know, the absurdities and, and the laughter, you do, you know, have some moments of, of more serious reflection. Um, mm-hmm. Like when you write about having lost both your parents and, and the way you experience your grief, which I th- I thought was um, just a, a, a really... Oh, it was it was kind of a, a strangely beautiful thought, just the way that you phrased it. Um, I know you you wrote that it's like hearing um, an artist on the radio and then remembering like, oh, they're not here anymore. I'm wondering if you could just yeah. kind of share. Yeah, just talk more about that. Well, my I was 18 when my parents died. They died separately, six months apart, um, and a very naive, sheltered 18. Um, and the thing about grief is when, like, when your parents die and you're so young, there's no roadmap for how to grieve, right? Or for how long you're supposed to grieve or how much you're supposed to think about your dead parents. Like, I'm 43 years old. I can't, I don't remember much from being 18. Um, And my grief, my grief now has sort of reached a point where it's like, oh, yeah, those people who made me, yep, they're dead. It's not inactive. I don't cry. I don't um, yearn for them. I have the perspective to know that if they had lived my life would be worse. So it, mm. it's very easy to be like, okay, good job, guys. Thanks for putting me here and immediately exiting. But I I think, no, I don't know of many people who talk about the kind of grief that's almost like passive, um, where it's just not like this burning, I miss my mom. And it feels taboo to say that, you know, when people ask me, like, do I miss my parents? And I say, no, (laughs) I'm realistic about the people they were. They, like, I'm grateful for them, but no. Um, And it's, I feel like it's important, at least for me to talk about it, to, to sort it out for myself, but also if there are other people who are like, yeah, my parents have been dead for 25 years. I can't, I'm I'm done crying about it. Hmm. And you touched on something where you said your life is is better. Um, was there like a feeling of of more or freedom to to kind of become kind of what I guess? Tell me a little bit more about that. I don't think they would have cared what career I chose or any of that stuff. Like it's it's not 
if if my parents were alive, I wouldn't be writing. I mean, honestly, they would provide a lot of material. <laughs> but I... I am fully aware of who they were. My dad could never keep a job. My mom had multiple sclerosis. If they, I mean, I would just be in service to keeping their, you know, pre-corpses alive if they were, if they were around now. Like, I understand that if my dad was alive, he would be stealing from me because hmm. that's what he did when I was a kid. You know, it's things like that where I have, you know, how like some people die and everyone just forgets who they actually were. And they're like, oh, my sweet angel. And it's like, uh, no, my dad was a gambler and a thief. And like, again, thanks for the genetics. <laughs> but... But I would not want to, my life would be worse if I had to settle my dad's gambling debts all mm. the time. Mm. And I think acknowledging who they were as people, um, at least for me, has helped the grieving process. Because I have perspective on what life would be like if they were here. If my mom was like baking cookies and... <laughs> driving me to soccer practice if she was that kind of mom i'd be like okay but she wasn't so you know yeah. it's okay yeah. like i'm i i miss the idea of a mother but i don't know that i miss my mother specifically Gosh, does this sound cruel? I hope not. No, I, hope I mean, I, I, I think it's 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 truth. Yeah, I mean, I, it's coming across to me. Um, and yeah, it's truth, and it's your okay. truth. And so I, I appreciate you again continuing to be <laughs> candid to with like some of monster. the feelings. No, and I'm sure there are others that that can can relate to that. Um, and yeah. this is, you know, this is us doing this human life. It's it's yeah. messy and it's complicated. You know, not everybody gets a set of wings after they die. And I feel like it's okay to be honest about that. Right. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with humorous essayist and TV writer Sam Irby. She has a new essay collection, Quietly Hostile. And we're also taking your calls and comments. If you have a question or a comment that you'd like to share with Sam Irby, if you identify with feeling quietly hostile sometimes or all of the times and and want to share <laughs> some anecdotes of, of that, you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And we do have another caller, Gregory in Oakland. Gregory, you're on. Hey, Sam, thank you so much. I'm calling in response to your approach for talking about your Crohn's. I was diagnosed mm-hmm. with Crohn's in my early 40s, and I had never heard of the disease. And part mm-hmm. of the reason mm-hmm. I had never heard of it is not just were there no commercials like you were talking about, but <laughs> it, wasn't okay to, it wasn't okay to talk about. And so the first yep. thing that I went through was, number one, I thought it was totally, you know, sort of a, a, a diagnosis that of the end of life being normal in any possible way, which it wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and it's just I didn't have anyone else that I could use as a reference. And then the other piece is, like you said, this idea of dancing the lie of saying what's really going on. I'm not good at that. So I started to do what you did was just 
to be open about it and honest about it. And it's actually created such a uh, uh, so many pathways, not only for me to be able to just be able to say, oh, bio break, you know, if I need a bio break, <laughs> or for other people to be able to say, hey, I have it too. Um, you know, what, what, a, what does it look like for you? What does it feel like for you? So I love your approach. I appreciate it. I think it is. Uh, thank you. I guess is, I'm just going to oh, say thank Gregory. you. Well, you're welcome. I'm sorry that you have this dreaded disease, but know that I'm out here with you. Um, and thank you for saying that. I do. It really does. I, and I understand where people, no matter what you have going on, it's a process to get to the point where you can talk to people about it. But I think when you do, it just lifts a weight off your shoulders. It feels unfair to both have a disease and have the weight of keeping it to yourself on you. And so I'm so glad you are telling people about your bio breaks. I'm about to steal that language because what I usually say is way worse. I can't say it on the radio, <laughs> but bio break is going into my lexicon as of right now. Um, and I think we're getting some more calls trying to go to Ramon in Vallejo. Uh, there we go. Ramon, you're on. Hi, thank you for receiving my call. I was so happy to hear uh, what you had to say. I really had to come to terms with the fact that uh, uh, I think as, as children, we often spend a lot of time uh, in grief, like, why was I treated that way? How could they mm -hmm. do that? But at a certain point, I was, I was like, oh my God, my father was a jerk, <laughs> and it was actually, you know, it was such and and um, uh, I, I met him seven years after sobriety, and literally right after I met him, he started drinking again, and he was oh. dead within two months when I was sixteen, and of course, this is an incredibly disturbing thing for a child, mm -hmm. but the great moment of liberation was to realize that he really had no concern for me. And that, uh, and, and he was a jerk. And, and that well, actually gave him humanity, and it gave me humanity. Oh, Ramon, thank you for sharing that story. And sorry that it ran so um, up so close to the break. Um, but we are going to have more with Sam Irby, humorous essayist and TV writer with a new essay collection titled Quietly Hostile, when we come back after the break. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim, and you're listening to Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. We're talking about finding the funny in the grossness and anxieties of everyday life. It's part of the themes in the new essay collection, Quietly Hostile, by humorist, essayist, and TV writer Sam Irby, who is with us this hour. And you, our listeners, are also with us. And you're welcome to continue sharing some of your stories, reactions to to things Sam is sharing. And um, if, yeah, if it, if it relates to you. So 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, where at KQED Forum. So, Sam Irby, let's get into TV a little bit, because that's also, you know, in addition to the essays, you you write for for television. Um, mm-hmm. You've written for shows Shrill um, and Just Like That, which is about to come out with with a new season. And you almost had your own show optioned, which we can get into. Um <laughs> But let's let's talk about uh, Sex in the City for a moment because mm-hmm. you you have a whole chapter that's called Super Fan. So you are also a, a self-proclaimed super fan of the show. And so what was it like being asked, invited to be in the writer's room for the reboot? I couldn't believe it. My agent sent me an email that said Michael Patrick King, the showrunner and creator, wanted to interview me and I was like to like to do what you know what I mean like what am I gonna that show is so glamorous uh (laughs) and I had watched it the entire series and I was like what what am I gonna give to these women like they don't want to they don't want my poop jokes in their show I was totally taken aback I had the interview it was great I knew like that I love Michael right then and Michael Patrick King the creator yeah yeah I couldn't turn it even though I was so intimidated I couldn't turn it down and everyone in the writer's room was so amazing I I still am in disbelief because I thought it was gonna be like okay Sam you're here you can punch up jokes you can you know you can make the room fun you can riff with everybody but I didn't think They would let me, like, get my actual grubby paws on these beloved characters. And they did. I I contributed so many ideas. I wrote an episode in the first season. I wrote two episodes in this upcoming season. And it truly has been, like, the dream of my life. That's great. (laughs) But do want to distinguish that for all the the fans that were disappointed with the first season that this is not your <laughs> fault that there's you oh, know people can God. just have opinions because you did receive a lot of hate mail like individual hate mail yeah right? like death threats it's so but i think because maybe i'm the most or not the most but i'm a pretty visible person right. you know uh for people to find and <laughs> and tell that uh i should die because i've emasculated the men on the show first of all 
my father, HBO Max, <laughs> approved everything. It's not me. Like, there's, I wish people understood how many rungs of TV that I am at the bottom. I am on the bottom of the ladder watching things go up and be approved and decided by other people. But it was so, um, I was not prepared for how much people love and not even love, but see themselves in these characters. And they take, they, they took everything so personally and wanted to assign blame to someone for, I I don't know what they wanted. Um, (laughs) I feel like that I, I love the show. I'm not just saying that because I worked on it, but, and I understand every, everyone is entitled to their opinion. I don't think they're all entitled to tell it to me, which is why uh, my DMs aren't open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it was that experience. I have only worked on small shows prior to this, like indie beloved shows, audience that loves it never got hate mail before i was not prepared for millions of people to care about a thing i had a tiny part in um and that was uh illuminating (laughs) (laughs) to say the least yeah well uh i can't say what i want to say but i'm sure you know what i want to (laughs) say get a life yeah Well, this listener writes, yes, do literally anything other than try to message me Uh, about what Carrie was wearing in the hospital. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or, yeah, or write an essay for yourself that you can publish for for people who want to bump into you on the subway and say, hey, I relate to that. (laughs) So uh, a listener writes, I would just love to hear about writing for TV, including for Shrill. When and how do writers find find out a show has been canceled? Is it really disappointing? Well, with Shrill, um, that that first season, I got the job because the show, it was Lindy West's show, and Lindy and I are very close, and she got to pick one person to be in the room, and she picked me, and that I am totally grateful to her. That was my first TV job, um, and working on that show was amazing. After the first season, they, like, shook up the writer's room, and they didn't have me come back. So I don't know what it's like to, uh, what it was like for that show to be canceled. I do, but two of my other shows I worked mm-hmm. on, Work in Progress and Tuka oh, and Birdie. Which I, lo- I love Work in Progress. Work in I Progress just- is, like, a dream I can't believe it's one of those things where I'm like, I can't believe we got to do this. And also it's terribly depressing that they wouldn't let us continue to let do you it. Cook. Yeah. And yeah. And I just want to add, cause it was something that I noticed too in relation and this will, will get to your, um, your optioned book that almost became a show, but didn't. And you write about that. Um, but I, I feel like shows like Work in Progress, also like Somebody Somewhere um, mm-hmm. on HBO are or were, I mean, now that Work in Progress is canceled, but Somebody Somewhere has been renewed or kind of, but that type of show where it's like following quirky people and how they navigate everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I felt like it's having like a little bit of a moment or at least was like had had its audience and has its audience. Um, and so when I found out you were um, writing on Work in Progress and that your book was optioned, I felt like it made sense because it's like your story and your quirkiness and your anxieties and your um, going into a show was going to kind of follow in, in those kinds of Work in Progress style footsteps. Um, but it it didn't ultimately cross the finish line and <laughs> yeah why why do you well I guess I'm not going to have you explain how TV execs were were thinking about <laughs> things but what was your experience of that um, because it it you write about how it took a, it was a lot of years of kind yeah. of in waiting and it got yeah. pretty far like there was a cast and everything yeah no one tells you how many unpaid years <laughs> I feel like if people knew that up front they'd be like oh oh no, uh, and then just go back to what they were doing. No, thank you. I don't want to try to make my thing into a show for five years for uh, pocket change. Um, I think to not take it personally, and because it's the truth, I really just think about these decisions are not about, I mean, they're kind of about the show, but it's like money and where can we shoot and who's going to be there and what else is in the lineup and what have we been developing for five years that you don't know about and it's exactly like this thing you had so we're not going to make your thing. There are so many things that go into these decisions that I've stopped taking it personally because it all comes down to money and views and you know, if Hollywood doesn't think that people will tune in to watch fictional me um, having a diarrhea attack at a wedding, I, I have to go with what they think. So I, I feel uh, I don't feel cheated or robbed or anything like that's just the way the business is. I suppose if I felt really passionate about it, I could try to go work at a network and <laughs> make the shows I want, but I don't. I I want to be a creative. It it was a good experience and I'm happy that I have it. I I think now at the end of the process, I do not want a TV show about myself for people to uh, snark about and pick over. Because, um, you know, not that many people read books, but a lot of people watch and talk about TV and offering up my tender actual life um, for that kind of scrutiny and criticism. I'm glad, I'm I'm kind of glad it, it fell through. I'd much rather work on other people's shows that are actually being made than trying to convince an executive that my show should be on TV, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, well, of course, you know, TV production now is just on hold with, with the writer's strike. Yeah. Um, I saw a tweet when, you know, as I was prepping for this interview that actually made me uh, think of you as TV writer and actress, actress uh, Ashley Nicole Black, who had her, oh, w I love her. Yes, WGA picket sign that read, jokes don't write themselves, people with anxiety disorders write them. And I just, I'm just curious about, um, yeah, just kind of your, your brief take on, on this, on this writer strike and kind of a statement like Ashley Nicole Black's, which is just reminding people that, I mean, not even just people, but people with anxiety disorders, like the quirkiness kind of comes from these individuals, not from, from AI. 
Yeah, I I mean, I haven't worked on a ton of shows and I don't live in L.A., so I don't have the typical TV writer life. I get to zoom in to a, a project and then, like, go back to doing whatever I do in Michigan. Um, but I think I don't know much about AI or how it works, um, but I have seen iRobot many times. <laughs> I'm afraid of uh, sentient robots uh, trying to kill me. Um, But, I mean, the strike is about getting our share of the proceeds generated by our work. It, I don't even, I'm not even sure why it's controversial other than, you know, the billionaire class doesn't want to share and uh, people who don't like unions love, you know, complaining about when a union is taking action. But, I mean, it it's pretty clear cut to me. You give me a tiny percentage of a thing that I made millions or whatever dollars for you, just give me a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty simple to me. I hear that, like, people are arguing about it. I don't, I don't get it, you know. I don't know. Union strong always. Uh, and I, w- and we'll see. Like, who knows what's going to happen. But I feel like eventually they have to cave. So it's so much money. Just sprinkle it on us. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with humorous essayist and TV writer Sam Irby. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. Uh, we have another caller, Anna in Oakland. Anna, you're on. Hey, uh, I just wanted to ask Sam about her hilarious newsletter that she sends out, uh, which I've been a loyal reader of for a long time, about the Judge Mathis TV show recap. (laughs) And I would just love to hear more about, like, you know, what drove Sam's love of this show and just thank her for her, like, Dickensian treatment of this TV (laughs) show that, honestly, more people should more people should watch. Okay, that is real. More people should watch Judge Mathis. Thank you for reading my newsletter. Um, I had a little panic because I thought you were going to say, you haven't sent one in a month. What's up? (laughs) Don't worry. The newsletter's coming back. I've just been a little busy. Um, I... In Chicago, when Judge Mathis first came out and they were giving out, I mean, I'm sure they they still give out free tickets. My friends and I went to the show like five times and the judge is just so funny. He gets the funniest litigants. It just goes down so easy. And the way I started recapping, truly we were, it was early in the pandemic, um, I wanted to keep writing, but I wasn't going to write about shuffling around in my pajamas all day. And so I was watching Judge Mathis and I thought, what if I recap this? Would anyone read it? And so I did it and people signed up. And uh, now I have to do it until I die because people love it. <laughs> 
Well, I just want to read a comment here. This is going back to your comments um, earlier around your parents, which were really resonating um, with listeners. Michael writes. Oh, good, because I was feeling. Oh, no. Yeah, it's getting a lot. So Michael writes on the parent issue 100 percent for Sam. No one's perfect and many are infinitely less. So the truth is the truth. And we also have one caller, Kendra in San Francisco. Kendra, we're. If you can keep it kind of brief, we're at, coming up on the end of the hour, but wanted to squeeze you in there. You're yes, on. I see it. Uh, thank you. And it is okay to not miss someone when they pass. And thank you for bringing this topic up. My oh, maternal grandmother never forgave my mother for having her, first of all. Like, that's a whole trauma within itself. And then she never forgave me for choosing to live with my father when my parents got divorced. So me and my mother, no love lost. Don't miss. Yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, you thanks. are so welcome. Thank you for saying that. That is real. More of us got to start talking about that. <laughs> so we feel safe. Well, to, to kind of get us closing out on a, a slightly um, brighter note, though, the honesty is, is not a, a bad thing. Um, I know you make a lot of people laugh with your work, but I'm curious, what makes you laugh, Sam Irby? Oh, well, I love memes. <laughs> First of all, I sound like your grandmother saying that. I love, love a, a good meme. meme. I love a good meme. I What else makes me laugh? Um, I love like stand-up. I love to watch old stand-up. Paul, I listen to Paul Mooney records all the time. I love Paul, Richard Pryor, like any old cranky comics. Those are my favorite. I love Curb Your Enthusiasm and Veep, (laughs) Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I mean, there's so much that makes me laugh. My goal is truly to just be laughing all the time. Like, life sucks. So... I got to find stuff to laugh about. Well, this listener writes, thank you, Sam. I love what you talk about and the humorous way you do it. I identify with it so much. Thanks for having her on this show. And so thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's thank It's been a true pleasure. Yes. This was a dream. Humorist, essayist, and TV writer Sam Irby, uh, her new book of essays is titled Quietly Hostile. And this hour of forum is produced by Caroline Smith, Juan Carlos Lara, Rachel Vasquez, and Grace Juan. Marle- Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer, and Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. And yes, you are hearing some more Dave Matthews band in the background in honor of our guest this hour, Sam Irby, who is a super fan. We're going to go out to the song Here On Out. And I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Have a good weekend. Cause you are my love. Like when I fell into your eyes, I could not get out. And I could not get enough. Is it okay if I call you mine? From here on out. So if I could ever stop. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.